This is the longest passage, I believe, in my sermon series on Judges, but it was necessary to cover all of the same concept in one sermon, so please bear with me as I read. Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Please hear now God's word. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste uh, the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joas the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in a winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord, tur the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to Gideon, he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If I have now found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. 
do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. And so Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broke down, broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. And then Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has broken down. And therefore on that day Gideon was called Jeroboam, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for these stories that you give to your people from the book of Judges. We thank you, Father, for they are a comfort to us and were given for our instruction as you tell us in the New Testament. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to learn from this section how it applies to our lives in the way that you intended it. And we ask it all, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you to describe to me what God's grace is, you would probably tell me, well, God, God's grace is God's unmerited favor, or it's the acronym God's riches at Christ's expense. And of course, you would be right. That's the way most of God's people, not only in this denomination, but in other denominations, describe God's grace. But I am afraid that for most of us, we have a hard time visualizing God's grace in operation. And therefore, we don't realize how great God's grace can be. I mean, we recognize that God has given us grace through Christ in our salvation. But since we don't feel it or we don't ordinarily see it working in our daily lives, we don't fully appreciate it. It's kind of like electricity. It supplies the energy source for the appliances like the refrigerator and the washing machine that we have in our house. It supplies the power for our lights to work. But it's hard to visualize those little electrons that are running through the wires. We know that they're there, but we just can't fully appreciate the good that it does for us. Well, that's at least part of the purpose of the story of Gideon and the Israelites because through it, we find in a tangible way how astonishingly gracious the Lord's grace can truly be. 
In the previous lessons in chapters 4 and 5, they tell of Deborah and Barak's defeat of the Canaanites who were led by Sisera and Jabin. They took place near Mount Tabor, which is in the northeastern part of Israel, just slightly to the east of Nazareth, where the Lord Jesus Christ would grow up in centuries to come. And this story about Gideon occurs in the same vicinity in Ophrah, which is about 10 miles further south of Mount Tabor. But before we get to Gideon, the Bible gives us an introduction to this account, and you will recognize if you've heard the other lessons on Genesis, that familiar phrase, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. The specific evil that they did, we can deduce from verse 10, where it says that they reverenced the gods of the Amorites, meaning that they worshiped the God of the Amorites. And once again, the Lord gave them into the hands of oppressors. This time it was the, Midian, the Midianites and those that were allied with them, the Amalekites and the peoples of the east. At first, Israel had good relations with the Midianites. They were descended from Abraham and Moses, a little later on in redemptive history, married one of the Midianites named Zipporah. But during the Exodus, relations between Israel and Midian began to deteriorate and they became enemies. The Midianites were not regular homesteaders in Palestine. They were tent dwellers, a nomadic people of the desert area to the east and south of Israel in that area of western Saudi Arabia today and also the Sinai Peninsula. And as you can imagine, in that desert environment, crops did not grow very well for the Midianites, and so they had to forage for their food and even had to resort to stealing it from other people, such as Israel. Their ally in plundering was the Amalekites, who were also distant relatives to the Israelites. They lived to the south of the Dead Sea. And they were joined by the peoples of the east, which was a nomadic Bedouin group that migrated from the Arabian desert. And so sometime after planting season, this confederation of the Midianites and the other peoples would sweep into the land of Israel in some fertile uh, area, and they would let their animals feed on all the lush vegetation in an area like the Jezreel Valley, and then they would conduct assaults all over Israel from that area. Their primary purpose was not so much to harm the Israelites as to steal their livestock and their produce, and they would strip the land bare of all available foodstuffs, leaving God's people in desperate need. And so the Israelites cried out to the Lord for deliverance from this oppression. But God answered them in an unexpected way because always before when the Israelites had cried out for his help, the Lord had come almost immediately to give it to them. But this time the Lord did not answer in that way. Instead, he sent a prophet to them to tell them, that they had not been living as God had commanded them to do. He had rebuked him. And we might be puzzled why the Lord reacted this way because we thought, well, doesn't the Lord always come to those who are repentant and cry out to them? And that was the problem. 
Israel was not repentant. Israel came to the Lord because they were under distress and they wanted relief from their problems. And the Lord had done that on each occasion before, but not this time. Three times before, he had delivered them without any apparent repentance on their part. But this time, circumstances were going to be different. There was no turning to the Lord with the intent of putting away their sins and starting on the path of renewed obedience. And you say, how do you know that, Ken? Because a little later in the section, there's an altar of Baal and an Asherah pole, which are used for pagan worship. And apparently, these things were still being used while Israel was crying out to the Lord for deliverance. And so the Lord spurned their request. His relationship with Israel was not a mechanical process in which they could simply use the Lord and call upon him such that he would instantaneously come to their rescue, at least not when the reason for their affliction still exists. And his action here signals the beginning of a sharper decline in his association with his people. Note here, as I said up to this point, the Lord saved Israel in spite of their lack of repentance. And this is one of the things that shows God's graciousness to his people, but not forever. At some point, God does not automatically come to our aid when we come upon him in need, not to the Israelites and not to us in our present time. God is not like our pet pooch who comes with his tail wagging regardless of how we treat him. To be sure, we must call upon the Lord when we're in trouble and when we need his help. But when we call, we must come into his presence not to use him, but to repent and be the people that he has commanded us to be. It is delusional to come into the Lord and ask him for help when we're acting in rebellion against him and hostile to his ways. But even still, the Lord did not ignore their appeal back in Gideon's day for very long because in verse 11, the angel of the Lord graciously raised up the next judge. At that time, Gideon was threshing or beating out wheat in a wine press. And the threshing process is, I'm not a farmer either, but you cut the wheat down and then you lay it down and you beat it with a stick or you use an animal to walk over it, and that separates the heavier grain from the chaff, and then you throw it up in the air, the wind blows the chaff away because it's lighter, and the grain falls back down to the ground. Gideon was in a wine press threshing wheat in this way. And the best place to thresh wheat is in an open area where there's some breeze, and even better than that, on a high area, where the breeze will really separate the chaff from the grain. But if he did that, the Midianites would have been able to see him. And so Gideon was in a wine press, which is a depressed area that is sort of surrounded by a wall beating out the grain. And he was doing so apparently so that the Midianites would not see the wheat and steal it from him. Well, the angel greets Gideon by saying that the Lord is with him, O mighty man of valor. So to get the picture of paradox here, Gideon was not a mighty man of valor. Gideon was hiding for fear of the enemy. His behaviors and the surroundings argued against this sort of salutation. 
And at this point, Gideon probably did not realize who this person was that he was talking with. And so he responded to the angel's greeting with sort of a three-pronged objection. First, he replies with a complaint sort of tinged with cynicism. Well, if you say this and this is true, why are all these bad things happening to us? And where are the Lord and his miracles that I have heard so much about from my parents and others? You say that the Lord is with me. It looks to me like God has taken off and left us in the lurch. There was a book several years ago. It says, if God loves me, why can't I get my locker open? It was a book written by teenagers, but you get something of the same idea. Well, then in verse 14, the angel repeated his initial assurance of God's presence, and he expanded upon it to call Gideon to save Israel. But in this verse, the angel is identified for us as the Lord, not just a heavenly messenger. And so the Lord appeared by a a theophany or a physical manifestation of God to communicate his choice of Gideon as Israel's leader. Note here, this is the only place in the book of Judges where the Lord appeared by theophany to call a judge to himself. We have something like this in the life of Samson, but he didn't appear to Samson. He appeared to Samson's parents. So this is the only time that he appeared like this uh, to the judge himself. And this indicates that this is the condition of Israel, that it is so bad that I have to personally appear to the judge and call him to go and save my people. Then Gideon raised his second objection with a protest of his families in his own obscurity. It's like saying, my family is the weakest in all of Texas, and I am the runt of my family. I am completely inadequate for the task that you're calling me to. But then in verse 16, the Lord reassures Gideon of his presence and of Gideon's success in battle against the Midianites. He will be able to defeat the Midianites with one fell swoop, essentially. Well, Gideon's still not won over by these promises, and he finally begins to realize that this person might be more than a mere man, and so he asks him for a sign to confirm his suspicions. This is sort of the third objection of sorts to the angel. And then Gideon went off to prepare an offering for him, something that would have taken an hour or two for him to produce, and the Lord waited patiently for him to return. The God of all creation waited an hour or two for Gideon to return while God is upholding the universe. That's how gracious our God is. And then he miraculously consumed Gideon's offering again, showing his grace to give Gideon this sign, and then he disappeared from sight. Now, up to this point, Gideon's desire for a sign was not seen as testing to the Lord because Gideon was uncertain exactly who this visitor was, whether a heavenly being or merely a human passerby that might have been some sort of crackpot for all that he knew. However, as we look at Gideon in this passage, we notice that Gideon had an attitude problem. His question as to the Lord's past miracles 
indicates that he was not aware of the Lord's recent awakening in his life through people like Othniel and Ehud and Barak, who we saw in the first five chapters of this book. And by accusing God of forsaking Israel, indicated that he didn't realize the uh, ramifications of the covenant that Israel had with their God. God promised to bless Israel, but Israel had to be faithful to their side of the covenant. And Israel had not been faithful to their side of the covenant. And so because God was not with them, he should have realized that the problem here is not with God. The problem is with Israel's unfaithfulness. But instead of acknowledging God's righteous dealings with Israel, his questions indicate an attitude of contemptuous distrust of any announcement with regard to God's kingdom and his relationship to Israel. Gideon had a crust of unbelief, we might call it, that it formed around his heart. And so, in like manner for you and me, do we find that our attitude is something like Gideon's. Have you had an experience that has soured you to such an extent that when people try to encourage you to trust in the Lord's working in your life, or they even invite you to church, that you respond with sarcasm and cynicism? Well, if so, there's sort of a crust of unbelief that is forming around your soul as well. It's making your heart harder and harder to the things of the gospel. And so you need to do something about it unless you become so hard that you fall away from the faith. Sometimes I find myself in this condition. Don't look up here at me like you're spiritual and I'm not. Sometimes I have found myself with the crust of unbelief around my own heart. And so I found that I am usually powerless to overcome this condition in and of myself. And so the process of relief from this condition begins with asking God to remove it. It doesn't have to be any big process. There doesn't have to be wailing and gnashing of teeth, although sometimes that would be warranted. It's just ask God to help you because you realize that you're not acting the way that you should be acting. And then I have found in every case that that has happened that God has answered that prayer. And I think that God will answer that prayer for all of us because I think that that's what his word tells us. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, it says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked for him. Now, does sometimes God deny us prayer requests? Sure he does. Sure he does. But it is God's will in every circumstance for us to live a sanctified life. And so if we need God's power to relieve us of this encrusted condition of our heart, we may depend on the fact that God is going to provide the power for us to do that. Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't have anything to do here other than just pray. We're the ones that have to use the power that God gives us to put to death the sins that are in our lives. So God gives us ability And then we use that ability for our own spiritual well-being. And it's a change, I'm sure, that he also graciously worked in Gideon. Well, after Gideon's first encounter with the Lord, the Lord appears to him again the same night and commands him to tear down 
the pagan altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole next to it. And if you remember from chapter 2, Baal was the Canaanite god of the storm and fertility. And he was accompanied by a female goddess named Ashtoreth, or some people might say Ashtart. Their shrine was located on Gideon's father's property. And then Gideon was to build another altar on the same spot to the true God and offer the burnt offering of one of his father's bulls. And Gideon did just as the Lord commanded. But Gideon was too timid to do the Lord's work in daytime because he was afraid of the repercussions. And so he gathered some help from his father's servants, probably those that he figured would go along with him in this endeavor. And he did the work when no one would see him. He lived up to the meaning of his name, which is hacker or hewer. He hacked or chopped down the Asherah pole. And then in the morning, Oakford's town folks, led no doubt by the mayor and the town council, found the local shrine desecrated, and they demanded payback. Probably one of the servants had squealed on Gideon, and that's how they found out about it, but... Gideon's father, Joash, got religion and told them, in essence, to take a hike. He reasoned if Baal was really a god, let him take his own revenge. And so the city leaders backed down, and Gideon got a good name, Jeroboam, got a new name, Jeroboam, which means let Baal contend. And the result of all this was, in one sense, Gideon became the living proof of Baal's impotence. The new judge began his career by driving Baal from the spiritual field of battle by tearing down his altar. But now Gideon must face the challenge of driving the human foe, the Midianites and company, from the physical field of battle. What would the Lord have us to think of Gideon's behavior when he went at night rather than in broad daylight to tear down Baal's altar? Uh, gets a lot of flack in the commentary saying that Gideon should have been more bold and daring to go out in broad daylight and tear down this altar. However, my favorite commentator is uh, Ralph Davis, my favorite commentator on the Old Testament that he is. And he says essentially, uh, did the Lord tell him to do it in daylight? Did he tell him not to be afraid or did he just tell him to do it? He further says about his behavior, quote, obedience was essential, but heroism was optional. And so Gideon didn't do anything wrong by going at night and doing it. He had to obey the Lord, and the Lord didn't say anything about doing it during the day. And there are a couple of lessons for us in this section First, Gideon's new life under God began with the mandate to clean house. If the Lord was to be his and Israel's savior, then Baal must go. No more vacillating between two opinions. If you follow Christ, you must put to death the Baals in your life. That is, the sinful deeds of the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you desire for the Lord to be there. And secondly, we learn that the Lord uses people who are sometimes trembling and timid. Everyone does not have to be uh, like Mel Gibson in the movie Braveheart to do the work of God's kingdom. Emotion is not what counts here. It's the will that counts. We only have to carry out God's commands in spite of our fright. 
And as we consider this story as a whole, it's quite astonishing to see how the Lord's grace worked with rebellious Israel. After three major judges, at first it appears that the Lord was actually finished with them because of their fourth apostasy. But he had compassion on them once more in spite of the fact that they were not repentant and completely unworthy of his help. And his grace was further seen in that he raised up a judge with a cynical attitude who was critical of the Lord. And so the Lord chose him not because of his spiritual strength, but in spite of his lack of it. And so the Lord's salvation to them is analogous to his salvation of us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God did not wait until we became worthy of his help either. He sent his son when we were still sinners. And not only were we sinners, a little further down in Romans it says we were also his enemies. Not just undeserving, but downright hostile. Sort of like Gideon was. That's how gracious the Lord's grace is. And so if you've never committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, consider how astonishing God's grace really is. He extends his mercy to you even though like the Israelites and also like all of us, you are completely unworthy of it. So repent, turn from your life of sin and trust in his son as your savior and begin to follow him as Lord of your life. If you're already a Christian, note here that there's grace for you too. See how patiently and tenderly God was with Gideon. He is with us even when our circumstances make it appear that he has forsaken us as it was in Gideon's eyes. And you must think that God is angry with you because you know that your attitude is not what it should be. But the Lord is not a God that stands over his people with a stick and smacks them at every incident for their flaws and timidity. He's long-suffering with Gideon, even though Gideon's attitude was not what it should be. Can we possibly imagine that he won't be the same with us too? God's grace is really gracious, and by that I mean God's grace is really generous. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your love, your kindness, your gentleness in dealing with your people. We thank you, Father, for the encouragement of your scriptures, knowing that even as you use a person like Gideon, that you can use people like us too. And so, Father, we pray that through this week we would grow more closely to you because of it, that we would live more sanctified, holy lives because of it, that we would love you a little more deeply. And we give thanks, Father, for all that you'll do in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. For our song of response and, and preparation for the Lord's Supper, let's stand and sing Amazing Grace, verses 1 and 2. It's in the Trinity hymnal, number 460. Amen. 